My Twitter was very, very valuable to me at 3,000 followers when all I talked about was self-storage. I'm not discouraging people and telling people they have to go big. Okay, I raised money to buy my first $3 million self-storage facility from Twitter when I had 3,000 followers. So no, you don't need to do what I do and trigger the woke mob and get millions and millions of impressions to grow a Twitter following. There's an entire generation of Americans who no longer care about prestige, titles, work travel, fancy offices, and lunches. Welcome to Mundane Millionaires, a podcast for this generation of small business owners who want to set their ego aside and focus on what matters, family, community, quality of life, and cash flows. In each episode, Eric Pasifici and Kevin Henderson uncover what it takes to get a little money in the bank, control your time, and invest in building great families and lives. Let's get started. Kevin Henderson, welcome to the pod, man. How you doing? Doing very well, Eric. Thank you for welcoming to my podcast. Welcome you to your old podcast. It's good. I'm the welcoming committee. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Good to be here. I'm loving it. Man, so. what an episode today. I texted you when it was over and I was being tongue in cheek, but I think I said our careers have changed forever. Career defining <laughs> moment. No, Nick Huber. Yeah. I mean, I, holy. What a powerhouse. It's it's fun to kind of decouple personalities like or people who have built personalities like that online and kind of pull the curtain back just slightly and like really dig in on business. And you, you talk about this, you, you actually raised this question in the podcast of like, you know, the way the algorithm algorithm works really pushes the like polemic content, but he is actually putting out great content on Twitter too. And I think that really shined through on this episode. Cause just, I mean, the whole thing from start to finish was just a masterclass. I thought. Yeah. We'll talk about, let's talk about Nick in a few minutes here. I, Cause I've got so much I want to say about Nick. I think he's, He's having his moment, right? Like this is totally. Nick Huber effectively like, like Michael Jordan at the end of a game being like, okay, now, now you give me the rock and everybody get to, gets the hell out of the way. That's what Nick did with Twitter and with social media a few months ago. So lots to say about Nick in an insane interview. So really, I'm looking forward to listening back to it as well. But interest rate hike. Fed approves interest rates for going to the highest levels in 22 years. Obviously, some pretty significant implications for... SMB quarter percentage increase will bring the Fed funds rate to a target range of five and a quarter to five five. Is that the same? Is that one of the same with the prime rate? Fed's fund rate? What is the prime rate? Uh, so, sort of. The yeah, I mean the the prime rate usually refers to like the Wall Street Journal prime rate, which is eight and a quarter. Slightly different, but it's it's derived from from the Fed the fund rate. Yeah, it's okay. All right. Well, somebody's going to call us out on this because I'm sure we're Someone's so, yeah, wrong. Someone's be like, it's one of those things I should have researched before I just brought it up. But but yeah, I mean, some significant implications for SMB acquisitions. We've got, you know, already a dramatically different environment than even when you and I started the firm SMB Law Group a year ago and people were buying businesses at like five and a half. Is that right? And And now... Yeah, like five and a half to six and a quarter was usually yeah, the range. Because it, it was prime plus whatever the yeah. spread was for the lender, which is typically, I think it's approved now to be as much as three, but you know, in most cases it's somewhere between 1.75 and like two and a half. And now folks are buying businesses at north of 10%. I, I don't think valuations have necessarily adjusted as a result of that change. I think it's 
changed the dynamic of business buying and much more, we're seeing much more equity and equity investors in these deals than when we launched. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's hard to say, right? I mean, we see a high volume of deals, but it is a little bit anecdotal at the end of the day. But I, I do feel like I see multiples have come down a little bit. I don't feel like I saw anything a year ago below four times, you know, now we're still occasionally seeing four or four and a quarter, but I'm, I don't know about you. I'm seeing a lot of three and three and a half. So I, again, a little bit anecdotal, but could be partly a product of that. But I think the other side of the house is you're absolutely spot on. We're seeing larger equity checks coming. We're seeing more yeah, yeah. 80% financing and less 90% financing on these SBA deals and having to plug the difference because I mean, something has to give. I think you had a great tweet on the buying power just to pivot to real estate for a second. Several months ago, after one of the hikes, the change in buying power, the type of house you can buy yeah. with the increase yeah. in mortgage rate. Like it's it's dramatic. It's shocking when you look at like 100 or 200 basis points on an interest rate, how much that shaves off the buying power. It's the exact same thing with these small businesses. You know, I've always been a big proponent though that I'd rather buy a a less expensive, same house, right? But have it be less expensive and have a higher rate than have a lower rate and buy it for more money, right? Because you can always refinance later. You can pay the debt down, you know, all things being equal. If, if the same house was, you know, a million bucks with a 3% interest rate versus, and these are, you know, made up numbers. I'd have to do some math, but a million bucks with a 3% interest rate versus 800,000 with a 7%. I'd almost always rather do the 800K house, pay 7% interest, refinance that debt in the future, pay that debt off, then overpay on an asset. But I'm sure, you know, some people out there would disagree with me. But well, one, one interesting part about rates having risen as dramatically as they did is it has not, and not from my perspective, prevented anybody from winning a deal or affording a deal. I cannot think of a single instance where somebody has said, zero instances where somebody has said, oh, wow, well, if the debt was still five and a half percent, I would have been able to buy this business. Yeah. Because the reality is the pool of buyers that a small business seller is selling to are almost entirely SBA buyers, right? They're all getting their right. financing from the same place. So it's, I guess it's plausible that a seller may say, because you have to underwrite differently in my valuation now is slightly differently. I'm not going to sell. Whereas I would have sold before, maybe, but yeah. Yeah. And I think the other side of that coin, just to tie that thread out is, you know, I think we're seeing these interest rates, you know, there were a little bit of nerves going and I don't know about you, like end of last year or whatever, like what's, what's this going to do the small business buying market and things like that. I mean, I think we'd be, I think we'd be silly not to recognize that it has some negative effects, sure. but, yeah. but at least here's my editorializing the way I see it. The, these interest rates are having a lot more of an effect in the private equity world on the deal side, right? Yep. And availability of capital and, and leverage for those deals. It's putting a ton of pressure on corporate America and what their kind of cost of debt and debt service and things like that are. And so I think there are still, it's kind of almost accelerating this wave of people of like, yeah, things aren't look, things are looking a little more bleak in private equity. Things are looking a little more bleak in corporate America and job security and things like that. I want to get home to Chattanooga and buy an HVAC business yeah. and raise yeah. a family. Yeah. And I think there's, I think there's an element of that going on and like, I'll, I'll make the model work. I'll make the financial model work. I'll raise the investment capital I need. 
but that this is, you know, maybe I would have done it in two years. Now I'm going to do it this year. I think there's, I think there's some of that going on too. A ton of that, you know, people coming out of real estate and venture capital and, and, and crypto and other, you know, beleaguered asset classes. Is that the right word? Beleaguered struggling asset classes and looking yeah. for somewhere to deploy capital. You know, I guess it makes sense when the speculation kind of dries up to go find profitable, enduringly profitable businesses with barriers to entry that have existed for 20, 30 years. It's pretty cool. But anyways, we don't want to, you know, like you said, we don't want to over glamorize it. I mean, just the reality is my perspective on it is it has not slowed anything down and maybe it will, maybe that's coming. I don't know. Well, I think, I think that's the perfect segue, Eric, to talk about and, and make an announcement about our new cryptocurrency that we're launching. Do you want to... Uh, no, no, I thought you were going to say the rebrand of the law firm from SP Logger. The rebrand of the law firm to W. Yeah, I tweeted, I think or, the poll one, I tweeted that if I would respect the will of the poll with the asterisk being, you'll never agree to it, nor will anybody else within our firm. <laughs> they were going to change our name from SMB Law Group to Pizza Law Group, hearkening to my love for pizza. But Twitter is now X, Kevin. And we have not talked about this. I want to know candidly how you feel about Twitter becoming X. Candidly, that's really tough. It's hard to tell if there's a strategy here or if he's just fucking around. Well, I can tell you what the strategy is. It's not him just sticking around. I've dug into this. Well, I mean, he literally went and grabbed a piece of clip art for the new logo. I mean, that's what it looks like. Like, this was not a very. Right. The logo is terrible. I I think it's terrible. It's not. Well, maybe it's just not for me. Maybe the rollout is just poorly executed and maybe there's a better strategy going on here, but I'm conflicted. Like I, I, of, of all the problems that Twitter's facing right now, I don't think the branding was the problem. I don't think changing the name fixes anything fundamentally. In fact, I think it almost kind of exacerbates the criticism and things like that. So it's hard for me to see the value that's being gained from the rebrand other than he, he had this URL he's been sitting on for a long time to use, but I'm open to being wrong. What do you think? What are your thoughts? Well, so, so the idea is the everything app, right? Quote unquote, the everything app is the business model. And supposedly this is something that they're doing in China with we with WeChat, where it is, you know, supposedly supposed to be the intersection of everything transforming X into a super app, which was pioneered in China and is taken off in other parts of Asia. It's the biggest super app. WeChat is the biggest super app in the world with 1.3 billion users and Musk's inspiration. He's called the app great. So he, I think he's trying to move to this, this everything app and the CEO, the new CEO, Linda, I, you know, I don't, I've never heard her name said, I don't watch enough CNBC, I guess. Yaka Karen, I can't even say it. She tweeted and she said, X is the future state of unlimited interactivity centered in audio, video, messaging, payments, banking, creating a global marketplace for ideas, goods, yada, yada. Here's my issue, right? You didn't ask me what I think, but I'm going to tell you anyways. One of I did. I, why can't you do all of that? You can do all of that without destroying an iconic brand, Right. And one of my Twitter followers, who's a really, he's one of my favorite, everybody's got like these niche followers that nobody knows about. This guy is, he's local and he's, he's really smart. Actually, he's very mysterious as well, but he, he tweeted and I don't want to butcher it, but he effectively said, you know, imagine having a brand that is so 
well-known and ubiquitous that it's become a verb in deciding you need to change that brand. And right. I think that was an astute observation. I think it's a mistake for, I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake. I think they could have done all of that under the Twitter banner, but I'm not a billionaire. I'm not the CEO of anything. So who knows? Hey, you're the co-CEO, I guess, for lack of a better term, of a fledgling boutique transactional law firm. I'm actually there. not. We don't even have that position. So <laughs> I, know, we, I know. wish we could pretend that we, we didn't even appoint ourselves CEO, so let alone anybody else. Well, hey, let, let's pivot back then to the king of, I, do, do we have to rebrand SMB Twit? Is it SMBX now? Or like what? I, I don't know where we go. Where we go from here, branding. That's a but. funny observation. I'm going to steal that here soon. But Nick Huber, man, let's talk about Nick Huber. And I could go for a while because I, mean, I don't know if I ever said this. I'm a massive Nick Huber fan, and I'm a bigger fan now of Nick Huber than I was a couple of days ago before I started doing the research for this episode. And Nick has always had this sense of humor and this ability to troll that I really admire. And we've got a similar sense of humor, and I think it's hysterical, right? And so always been aware of Nick and, you know, Nick introduced me many years ago when I was not on social media to self-storage investment and a number of things. So this is always a guy I've been aware of and, you know, he doesn't know me from Adam until a few months ago, but starting to do the research on this episode and reading everything that Nick Huber has tweeted and written and podcasts and the podcasts he's appeared on, this guy is unbelievable, Kevin. He is unbelievably smart. I don't think most people realize that, right? They think when they think, when most I think people think, Twitter, bro. 98% of the people who know the name Nick Huber know him because of the sensational tweets, the, right. the deck, you know, I'm going to evict the tenant because I raised root prices because I put on a crappy deck or I love HOAs and, you know, drinking caffeine-free diet <laughs> soda with expensive booze. Happy. That's how they know Nick Huber and they think this guy's a troll or even worse than that, which is like the international VA stuff and the woke mob stuff where they're like, this guy's, you know, needs to die. Really terrible things being said. Nick is, I mean, I encourage everybody after this to go to the show notes, go to some of his stuff, his newsletter, his, read his tweets, read all of his tweets, not just the big ones that, you know, are forced onto your feed because they go to 2 million people because they're hilarious, but read the business tweets. This yeah. guy, his best, and I, we talk about this in the episode, his best ability is to take a business concept and to communicate it in short form and to write about it. He's exceptional at communicating with written words. He's exceptional at curating a, a really interesting brand, right? He's the, you know, the frugal guy who lives in the $200,000 house in small town America, but separately, you know, has a, you know, $25 million net worth and is at the country club all the time, right? He pulls on those little threads and he is manipulating. The mob is running wherever he tells him to go. And it's cool. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fascinating to hear his approach to Twitter as well, because I never heard it put in the terms he put it in that Twitter's just a large marketing funnel for him. Right. And, and the idea with these viral tweets is to expand eyeballs, knowing fully well that it's going to distill down to a much smaller subset of those impressions that are going to actually be interested in and seek out his actual high value business content. And then a subset of those that are actually going to do business with him. And when you think about it like that, the strategy of 
kind of his approach to Twitter becomes more genius than it is yeah. anything else. I mean, people think he's just kind of an asshole out there, but he's very thoughtful in the way he does this. To, to, you know, yeah, it's incredible. His business investment thesis, I think he put it perfectly, is every business he started or invested in is a line item on his P&L. And when he realizes where his money is going in his business, he goes and starts one of those businesses so he can be doing business with himself. Just incredibly thoughtful, smart way to scale and build a hold co like he's doing. Yeah. And we get into everything, right? And we push him. And there are moments that you could tell that he seems not pissed, right? But like he feels, you can tell at the end, he felt challenged in a number of ways. And he even said, like, bring it up. Like, what do you got? You know, let's yeah. talk about VAs. Let's talk about me sharing my net worth. Like, he's like, bring it out. Let's argue about whether or not I should be sharing my $25 million net worth, the asset allocation, yeah. telling you how much cash I have, whether or not that's a security risk. He gets into his book deal and what he's trying to do with his social media funnels, his funnels within funnels to get yeah. to this book deal. So many other things. He breaks down his business. It's a business empire now at this point, right? And this is textbook branding, right? I talk about this concept and I bring it up in the pod, but about Sheehan's wall and how... Any branding expert goes through this period where you're hitting the wall on the same spot forever. Nobody cares who you are, you're fighting for everything. You're fighting to raise equity. You're fighting to, to have people take you seriously. And then one day you break through the wall and it goes from push to pull. And all of a sudden, every conceivable opportunity is coming to you. When you want to start a pest control business, you tweet about it. And a week later, you have a pest control business. And he's gotten, he's run the play where he built, you know, Monday Millionaire, right? He built an SMB, a student storage business, which he then parlayed, which he now describes as insane, but he parlayed it into real estate, private equity through development and then acquisitions. And then now he's broken through that wall. He's got endless opportunities, parlayed it back into this empire businesses. I mean, it's 10 businesses deep in at the beginning of reviewing that business model. I'm asking myself like, is this guy throwing spaghetti up against the wall and he is, you know, nine of these 10 are going to fail and it's going to look silly in a couple of years. And by the end of it, you go, holy shit, like there's no downside in any of these businesses. They're all bootstrapped. There's no debt. They're all cash flowing. They're all businesses that he's feeding through his, the only, you know, I guess potential argument against what he's building is the concentration risk around his real estate, private equity empire. And if there was some sort of systemic hit to that that type of business but they're very diversified so maybe not right so it is this is my favorite interview that we've done so far and super excited to listen to it i'll let you close this out before we go to nick kevin no i just echoing everything you said eric fantastic and i think to sum up well what you said it, it's it, it was easy to go into this thinking throwing spaghetti at the wall and in a lot of aspects his business interests his approach to Twitter things like that I think my biggest takeaway from this interview with Nick and a, an important thread to keep recognizing and threading through who are those mundane millionaires out there is just how incredibly thoughtful everything he does is yeah. right he's not throwing spaghetti at anything. And nobody who's achieving the level of a success like Nick has and continues to achieve is throwing spaghetti at the wall. Things are incredibly thoughtful. And, and, if, and if you don't think so and don't recognize that, you may be missing something. And I think a lot of that, it certainly 
clarified for me on this interview. I think it's going to clarify for a lot of the listeners. I hope everybody loves it as much as we really love doing this interview. And hopefully this won't be the last time we talk to Nick. We'll get him back on here soon. It's the most important podcast episode that's ever been recorded in the history of podcasts that pertains to SMB Twitter and self-storage and real estate private equity crossover. I'm just kidding. Enjoy, Nick. And number eight is going to blow your mind. Yeah, number eight. Enjoy the episode, guys. All right, Kevin. We've got an incredible guest here today, Mr. Sweaty Startup himself. Mr. Real Estate Private Equity turned SMB King. I think there's an SMB Queen. We won't name names, but the SMB King. Now Nick Huber in the studio. How you doing, Nick? Eric, Kevin, thanks for having me. I'm excited. I think uh, you all know me pretty well. We've built a friendship over the last couple of months. So I think uh, you'll be able to, I mean, my goal here is to add any value that I might have to whoever might be trying to grow a following, make money, build businesses, get into real estate, whichever direction the conversation takes us. I love yeah, that. Well, yeah. That's what we're about. And you know, the theme, the theme of the show we talk about all the time, right. Is which has been your theme since the start, I think, and kind of underlies your name, sweaty startup, right. Which is the, the guy or gal next door, you know, simple, boring businesses kind of building incredible wealth, which, which appears what you've done. You're very open about it on the internet. So super, super excited to, to dig in with that. I think you've got a lot to say that's going to resonate with the audience. So Super excited to have you on. Thanks for joining. Let's do it. So Nick, you're, I don't think we need to spend a ton of time on your background, right? Because I think most people who are going to watch this pod know who you are. And your story has been very well told. You started out with a student. And correct me if any of this is wrong or if I get any of it inaccurately or if there's anything you want to add. But starting out with student storage, I think 2011, you started that business. Student, you know, it is what it was, student storage. You ran that business until 2021 when you exited, I think you said for 1.75 million, had some ups and downs with COVID and kind of re, re, redid the business model throughout. But you had transitioned in the meantime in 2015 into real estate private equity, built a self-storage facility in Ithaca, New York, and then ultimately turned that into Bolt Storage where you went on and started acquiring a number of self-storage facilities and kind of got into real estate private equity. I think seems like primarily through Twitter, right? It was kind of how you got introduced to that and found the capital, which is which is fascinating. And now you're headed back into SMB land. And I want to hear all about the SMB, the plan, the strategy. I mean, you've got about 10 businesses now, I think, in, in total that you have some sort of position in. And in addition to, you know, a number of other things that you're doing with real estate, private equity, what's, what's going on with the, the switch from being the real estate guy, the, st- the storage guy to the SMB guy. Let me make it clear that when I pass away, 80% of my net worth will be in real estate. So I don't want to confuse everybody and make them think that, hey, you know, Nick's focusing on all these small businesses. When I am, yeah, I'm building small businesses right now, but my, I know that the major, you know, vast majority of my net worth and you know, my wealth as I age will be in real estate. I think there's no better business in the world than real estate, private equity. And let's be, let's also be clear in that every business I've started has been a service business. Like people don't understand that real estate, private equity is a service. You're providing a service to investors to deploy capital, right? I don't have a ton of my own capital. This is all new. My, my wealth, which we can talk about is new. It's also modest in in comparison to what you need to buy massive amounts of real estate. We bought a hundred million dollars worth of real estate. It's not like I came up with the $45 million needed to close on those deals. I provided a service to investors to 
to run those properties. I mean, we manage the properties. We do a lot of work with the banks. We do a lot of work with the capital raises. So I'm an operator at heart. I mean, in, in real estate in general, and you know, the similarities between real estate and small business are numerous. I mean, especially self-storage. Self-storage is a small business disguised as a building. That's all it is. People think real estate is a passive yeah. income stream. You know, I'm going to buy a piece of real estate. I'm going to get checks in, into my mailbox. And maybe that's the way it's sold on social media. But real estate is about operating com a company. It's managing, it's hiring, it's delegating, it's running a business. To be fair, we run into the same thing occasionally in the small business world of people like, you know, my criteria is, you know, half a million to a million dollar EBITDA, great management team in place, you know, hands off for the owner. Like that's interesting criteria. Like I love to hear what you're buying that does that. But if I, so if I'm hearing you right in, in summary, you're viewing this less as a transition to SMB and more of an accretive play just to continue to expand the pie of what really continues to be a real estate play for you. Yeah. My, I, I realized in 2021 when I took an ownership stake or it was first an affiliate deal in support shepherd, which recruits Filipino talent. I realized that the power of my distribution to grow companies is vast. Yeah. It grew my real estate private equity company, found me the investors, found me the partners, found me, you know, the team. I built a lot of the team on the back of Twitter and it, and that business exploded and became very big. And I realized really quick that, hey, a following on Twitter is a cheat code to do business on easy mode. And business is never easy. But when I can find talent with Twitter and I can find customers with Twitter, you know, it's a little bit easier to do business. So I realized pretty quickly that I needed to double down and get pretty serious about this. And I guess if I zoom out and just maybe we can start with the end goal in mind. I think the personal cash flow, my goal right now is to, is to get as many people in, into the Nick Huber ecosystem as possible. Through Twitter, I can attract talent. That's what it's really good at. I can find people who are really good at what they do and they want to be a part of what I'm building. They want to be one of my operators. They want to partner with me to build a company. They just want to come to work for me, show me what they can do because they know that as I do bigger and bigger and, and bigger things, I'm going to create a lot of opportunity and I'm going to create a lot of millionaires and, and you know, people who are great at managing companies and do special things with them as we go along. Yeah. So my goal right now is to get them in the room, build companies and build my personal cash flow to X dollars per month. That's what I need and that's what I want. And I want to spend a couple of years with this group of people that I have now. It's, you know, maybe 25 people who are in management operating, you know, positions inside of these 10 companies. I want to get to know them. I want to know how, what their strengths are. I want to know what they're good at. I want to get a feel for how they do business. And then, you know, I want to piggyback on my business brokerage to buy companies and maybe it's not start companies. I'm, I'm starting a bunch of companies right now. That's, that's tough. It's a lot of work. It's hard. Um, pretty soon I want to kind of have my own family office, have my own holding company where we are, we're buying companies and we're buying real estate. And um, when those two things work together and I spend, you know, a lot of my time on businesses that generate massive amounts of cash and I can dump that cash into real estate and, and other small businesses. It's a very tax efficient way to, to build an empire over time. So let's, let's pause for a second. I, can we unpack the, the business portfolio and do you mind taking us through each one and kind of tell us a little bit about what each one is and what your position is with it or, or how much you own, whatever you feel comfortable saying. So I think we've got web development, landing pages, SEO, performance marketing, recruiting. I'll, I'll stop and I'll let you do it, but it's an impressive spread. Yeah. So I have a, I've, NJH Hold Co. That's my 
company that, you know, oversees all these individual companies. There's six employees there now, and that's where also kind of my media company resides, the sweaty startup brand. So I have an operator, a marketer, a copywriter, and two video editors and audio editors that, that work at, at that company. That's just me. Then I have my business brokerage. I partnered with my dad on that one. I own it all for now, but I'll have some equity partners in that business. I have, that's through nickhuber.com. Obviously I have Bolt Storage, the self-storage company. Then I have an SEO agency, Bold SEO. I own a majority ownership stake in that. I have Titan Risk, which is, I guess if we stay with web, it's SEO, web development through web run, performance marketing, adrhino.com. Then I have the two recruiting agencies, RecruitJet for um, in the United States, talent, management talent. And I have a, a minority equity stake, less than 15% now since Sean Pree bought in into Support Shepherd, which it recruits overseas people. Then if we switch over to real estate, I have property and casualty insurance company, Titan Risk. I have a cost segregation firm, RE Cost Seg. I have a debt and equity company that I'm still searching for, an operator, Blue Key Capital. Then I'm an investor in a pest control company called Spidex. I have my book that'll be coming out in a year and a half, early 2025, that's going to be built around a company and a name, a title called The Anti-Entrepreneur. So yeah, it's growing fast. That's a lot. Kevin looking for a gig. So the operator role, you might want to talk to him offline about that. So. The legal world's not working out for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's how, so how do you conceivably run all this, Nick? How many employees do you have? Do you have operators for each business that's actually doing the day-to-day -day? and how much involvement do you have in each? The only company that I am the you know, boss of everybody in the organization is my personal media company. Still I don't have anybody running ops at the media company. I'm still the one writing almost all the content. I have help posting and commenting and, you know, editing down the podcast and stuff like that. But every other company, every single other company has a leader and that leader interacts with all the customers. I don't interact with any of the customers. None of them have my email address and they also have teams that they're building. The operator at Ari Kostek has 26 employees. The operator at the insurance company is my business partner, Dan. We have four employees there, you know, just on down the list, we have teams of anywhere from, you know, two to three employees at some of these smaller companies to 25, 26 at RE Costeg. And I'm way less involved operationally in Support Shepherd, but over 200 employees there. So it's growing. Wow. Yeah. Holy hell. And you're moving really fast too, right? Because I mean, I think when, when you're on my first million in February, I don't know that any of this, well, some of it existed. Shepherd existed, but a few others, RE Costeg, I think. Yeah, um, SEO didn't exist. The, the U.S.-based recruiting company didn't exist. So yeah, it's it's all happening very fast. And look, I have the same exact playbook with all of them. We build the websites the same way. We set up the tech yeah. stack the same way. We have the Stripe account. We have the same online banking. We have you know the same payroll provider. We use Shepherd to staff our early employees. We use RecruitJet to you know, recruit our you know U.S.-based operators and talent now at this point. So it's it's all very very similar. Agencies. Yeah, Pest control. I think you mentioned the pest control on Twitter like a week ago, right? That you were looking to acquire in the pest boot. Is that a new development or is that? I partnered, that with, I, I partnered with an operator. It's under the brand Spidex. His name's Coleman Spaulding. I'm a minority equity shareholder in, in the new ventures where our goal is to raise capital and go out and buy. We, we launched a pest control company in a town in California, and we're going to buy a couple more this year and start to raise some debt equity and grow the, the pest control branch. Are a lot of the, like, are most of these your, your ideas that you're kind of coming up with, man, I should really do 
SEO, I should do web marketing or whatever. So I'm going to go out strategically and find the right operator. Or are a lot of these folks who have an idea, they come to you, hey, I'm an SEO expert. I've got this idea, would love to pitch it to you and get your help building together. Like, What's the strategy as you look at more and more of these businesses that you're getting involved in, in terms of kind of the ideation and implementation, et cetera? I'm, what I'm doing is I'm looking at my profit and loss statement at Bolt Storage, and I'm turning the costs, the cost centers into okay. profit centers. That's what I'm So it's very like strategic I'm, on your part. I'm thinking like, what's a foundation? What's a foundational group of companies that I can own that are going to give me a competitive advantage in all my other companies? Meaning yeah. I can start a company. I can start a company in the future or in the future, I can buy a company. I'm, I'm kind of thinking five years down the road. I have a foundational company. I can recruit talent. I can do you know, amazing digital marketing with pay-per-click AdWords through AdRhino. I can do link building through Bold SEO. I can build a badass website through WebRun. I can have all these in the back pocket. So that when I go buy a company three or four years from now, boom, all my vendors and my ability to kind of supercharge that company is set up. So no, these aren't just random you know, plays where I think I can make money. These are literally companies that I am using. I mean, I am still the largest customer of almost all these companies. Bolt Storage was Titan Risk's first insurance customer. We were RE Cost Seg's biggest customer. We do 32 Cost Seg's last year with RE Cost Seg. So all of these wow. companies are, are things I needed as a business owner. And it turns out that I am kind of preaching to other people like me on Twitter. I'm preaching to other people who own real estate. I'm preaching to other people who own small business. So a lot of other people need them too. So if I can grow sustainable companies. So yeah, it's always, hey, I need a performance marketer. I'm using, a, I'm using performance marketing at all my companies. Who can I go out and attract with Twitter to come in here and be my operator at this company? I'm going to go, I'm going to vet, I'm going to interview five people. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to meet with them. I'm going to make a deal with one to, you know, take an ownership share and, and help me build an agency. Which that. of these businesses are you most excited about, Nick? And which do you, which do you think is going to be the most challenging? Because is this a spaghetti against the wall strategy and, you know, see what sticks? Or do you believe that? And obviously, you're going to say that you believe they're all fantastic businesses. I get that. You have to say. Yeah, I own, I own more than 50% in all the recent ones that I've started, everyone. So if a company is generating 20 to 30 grand a month of EBITDA, that's, that's significant. That's worth it. You know what I mean? So these companies yeah. don't necessarily need to be 1 million, 1 million plus EBITDA businesses. Now, the ones that I think will, um, the SEO agency is taking off. Everybody needs backlinks. Everybody needs to rank. The... Cost segregation firm is already doing 150 grand a month of revenue. The property and casualty insurance company I'm really excited about because real estate brokers, and, I mean, insurance brokers are notoriously golfers. They don't actually work hard for their clients. I'm excited about that business. I mean, what businesses do people make a lot of money and they're not necessarily that great at their job? Those are the ones I love. Fuse your more necessity. You're excited about having a business where you can golf all the time or you're excited because that's <laughs> low hanging fruit if you just work a little harder I'm to, competing. To I like to than. compete with people who golf all the time. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love that. And so you're taking 50% of everything you create now. Is this is that a product of your distribution? And you're saying, hey, my reach is that powerful that I have that that the value of these organizations should be almost entirely with me, or I'm not going to put my brand into the organization at this point. I uh, I own more than I mean, I own 75% of my US based recruiting company. I own 65% of my ad, you know, so, so it's even more than that now. And I don't think I'll ever do another deal where I don't own the majority ownership stake. It's just not, it's not worth it. 
distribution. I think distribution is insanely valuable. And also I'm the one with the ability to grow the team. I'm the one with the ability to, you know, recommend all these other services to get the web page built and the bank account opened and the payroll all set up and, and just do it all. So yeah, I, do I don't these, know. it's arguable. Do these latest investor and latest ventures where you're a majority in all of them, do they have outside investors or is part of that a product that you've grown your portfolio and net worth to a point where you're able to bankroll entirely, not just your distribution, reach, reputation, name, but you're also the the sole equity provider. And that's also part of what justifies the majority economics. Or are you still bringing in outside investments in some of these later? No, no, no outside investments. I'm investing my own cash. I Some of these companies are, are capital intensive. The property and casualty insurance company, that's burning 30 grand a month. We're 100 grand deep and we haven't written very many policies yet. We're there, but just the life cycle of a close is very long. Other businesses, you know, we, for S, for the SEO agency, we put 50, 50 grand in a bank account and, and we're going and, and we're going to be profitable three months in. So, but no, I'm personally investing probably 150 grand a month right now into my email list growth. I'm doing a lot of paid sponsorships to grow my personal email list, my personal brand. I'm investing pretty heavily at the hold co level. And then a lot of these companies are not profitable yet. Most of them are not. So it's definitely something that I am personally bankrolling. And that's another reason why I can justify a lot of equity. Yeah. Yeah. The distribution strategy. Let's talk a little bit about the distribution strategy because, you know, reading your stuff is, I think you suffer from the same issue I do, which is the hyperbolic stuff, the sensational stuff rises to the surface. And I think a lot of people remember that stuff and they're not reading all the tweets. They got 50,000 impressions that very many, very few people read. And so I read all of the, the Nick Huber library and I go, this guy's incredibly intelligent. He's a great business guy. And probably if I were guessing, I don't know you well enough to say for sure, but I think your best skill set is your write, your writing ability, your ability to take ideas, condense them. Assuming you're writing the content yourself, I would guess you are. Yeah, I am. But a lot of people, when they think of Nick Huber, they think of the sensational stuff, you know, the diet coat or the caffeine free diet coke with the expensive booze, the, you know, the mini deck that was built to raise rents to Victor Tennant, the HOA loving, the blocking. I think a lot of people think about the blocking, right? And so how do you think about distribution? Because I think some people would characterize it as distribution at any cost necessary. And I, I don't know if that's entirely fair. So how do you see your strategy? Yeah, Twitter is a funnel. Twitter is a funnel. And people think, hey, Nick got 300,000 followers because he's the self-storage guy or he's a small business guy or he tweets about entrepreneurship. And that's just, that's just not true. It's false. Like, First of all, my Twitter was very, very valuable to me at 3,000 followers when all I talked about was self-storage. I'm not discouraging people and telling people they have to go big. Okay, I raised money to buy my first $3 million self-storage facility from Twitter when I had 3,000 followers. So no, wow. you don't need to do what I do and trigger the woke mob and get millions and millions of impressions to grow a Twitter following. And yeah, there's a lot of people who see those tweets and they don't see my in-depth, you know, content on hiring, on delegation, on real estate, on running a business, the stuff that's more valuable to the business owners, but that's fine. If they elect to focus on the clickbait or the trolling or the blocking, and, and that's all they want to focus on, I can't control that. I, my, my job is to build a valuable Twitter feed. I do that. And the people who follow it and click on it and read it know that. They know that about me, that I'm, that I'm in the trenches building companies and sharing that stuff along the way. And the ones who choose to poke jabs at me until I finally block them and then post a screenshot of me blocking them and act like I'm a jerk 
Like that. They I love the screenshot. Care. They they love the block screenshot. I don't know why they do that. <laughs> they love it. Yeah, they think it makes me look bad that they got blocked. <laughs> when it, and maybe it does to them and their group of cronies. Maybe it does. Oh, that's a chance to pile on Nick that he's a jerk and he blocks people. I block people who I can tell don't have my best interests in mind. I can tell. Like when I'm reading, when I'm reading somebody's tweets, I may respect them. I'm definitely not going to talk crap about them. I'm not going to beat them up in public. But if I can read that they're they're writing on my tweets, they're sharing them in a way that I know they just don't have my best interests in mind. They don't like me. And they're you know, taking jabs. They're taking jab, jab, jab. Life's too short to deal with people who don't have your best interests in mind. I believe that in life and I believe that on the internet. So yeah, I'm quick to block the crabs in a bucket who don't want to see Nick Huber win. They want to see Nick Huber fail. I don't have time for those people. I won't take us down this rabbit hole, Kevin, but there is a sub community on Twitter where if you post a screenshot that I blocked you, there's a bunch of people that will follow you and say, that's an automatic follow that he blocked you. So I definitely sympathize with what you're saying. But with big distribution, you get haters. I mean, it's just part of the game. If, if you're worried about what people think about you on the internet, you're in the wrong business trying to grow a following on Twitter. Everybody, the, most, the best basketball player in the world, LeBron James, you read any of his Twitter posts, the top 10 comments are people hating LeBron James. Every politician, every star of yeah. any kind, any, whether they're a professional athlete in any sport, whether they're music, whether they're acting, whether they're politics, whether they're a business builder, people in the arena get hate from all the people who are jealous of them, period. And people also just kind of naturally gravitate towards things they don't agree with for some reason on the internet. So they hang out and, and like to just talk trash and it's just part of the game. And I, I accept it and I'm, I don't let it bother me. Do you have was thick that, skin? Is, do you, I was about yeah. to ask and like ask. I feel a like friend, that's such a know, prerequisite. Like, like I, I got pounded as a kid in the, you know, this, I need to rephrase this. I took a lot of shit as a kid, I like football teams and stuff like that. I was, I was, a, victim of, I got I was a victim of bullying as well. Yeah. yeah, it's a, I do have thick skin of, and of, and it hurts, of course, like when somebody, when it does hurt is when somebody who is respectable, when somebody who has a business, when somebody who is an upstanding member of the community that we built online, whether it be SMB Twitter, real estate Twitter, when they start talking trash, yeah, that hurts a little bit. When anonymous, you know, parents basement 69, 420 at, you know, Twitter handle real, account, those people, those people don't. They don't really hold any weight, in my opinion. But it's taken me years. I mean, early on doing this, absolutely, I would get, I would get offended. I'd get upset. I'd get sad when people were talking trash on about me on the internet. It's natural. I care about. I, I like to sit here and say that I don't care about what people think about me. Obviously, I do care about what people think about me. I think anybody who says that is is a liar. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I you, think there's. Go ahead, Kev. I was just gonna say you kind of answered my question because I was curious if that's been a a learned skill as you've grown online as someone much smaller than even both of you on Twitter, you know, where I'm still at that inflection point where I'm like, Ooh, like if I say that that way, like how, how is this segment going to react versus that? And I just, I haven't quite built that thick skin. And it, it sounds like what you're saying is that that has been, especially early on, it was a lot harder. You've kind of grown that thicker skin as you've gone on and, and can roll with the punches as they come quicker and faster, so to speak. Yeah, we're competing in a, we're competing on a social media platform for likes and retweets and followers. Yeah. So we can't sit here and act like our egos aren't involved here and we don't care what people <laughs> right. think about us. <laughs> That's fair. I, and I think there's a threshold, right? And there's this concept in brand building called Sheehan's Wall, right? 
And I think everybody experiences this. You talk about your 3,000 person, 3,000 follower account that was able to be effective in raising money, but you were in push mode at that point, right? You were actually, you know, having to affirmatively go out there and do work. And there's a point in brand building, they call it Sheehan's wall. I don't know what, where the concept originates from, but effectively you're hitting the wall in the same spot over and over and over and over again until eventually you break through. And when you break through the wall, the psychological wall in the community or whatever it is, it goes from push to pull. All of a sudden you go from being, you know, fighting tooth and nail to raise money for a storage roll-up to rolling out 15 companies and everybody wanting to come to you with ideas. And I think that the trolling has the same threshold, right? It goes from, you know, the, the little guy account where you're not getting very many negative comments on a post. And so a few of them hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly when you're not a big account because then they know you more personally. Maybe they've looked at your LinkedIn. They've thought about you more than they should have. And they've said something real personal. And then you break through that wall. And there are so many negative and mean things said about you on every, any given post that you stop giving a shit. You stop even reading them, I think, for the most part, except for like the handful or the few that really sting. But mm -hmm. yeah. anyways, that's the, the fun of social media. Nick, I want to talk about the funnel, though. Let's hear about the Nick Huber funnel. You see, so you, you got the big Twitter following. Where does it go? So, yeah, Twitter's top of funnel. That's where people get to know. And, and, and look, even Twitter's a funnel. The top of the funnel for Twitter is, this is a joke post about an HOA. That's what, mm -hmm. that's what 50 million people saw last month. You know, a million of those people came back and got to see another post of mine, which was about business building, about, you know, basically Twitter is, a, is it's a sad game where you have to tell people how much money you make and how you make it in order to get followers. Now, yeah. when I started, you could write a good thread and, followers would come and, and the algorithm would boost you. Today, to get followers on social media, you have to tell people how much money you've made and how you made it. And that's just the way the game is now, unfortunately. Like, that's it. That's it. Nobody wants to follow somebody who, isn't, who can't do something for them. Every, every follow, every person is super selfish, super selfish. They're reading through posts. What can I get from this person? If this person can't give me anything, I, I got no use for them. You know, that's how everybody's thinking. So I have to basically stand on a pedestal and build myself up and brag and, and look like an idiot over and over and over again to get followers. It's just part of the game. And, you know, below that, the people who already follow me, that's when I, that's where I, you know, provide the high value business content. And then maybe they get on my newsletter and they read, you know, a 1500 word post every week about how I think about delegation and management. They get to know Nick even more. Maybe they trust me enough to, you know, go to one of my companies below. That's my podcast. They're listening to me speak in their heads for 20 minutes at a time, you know, a couple times a week. And then at the end of it is just, they're going to, they're going to give me money, you know? So yeah, 50 million people a month, see my tweets, you know, okay. 130,000 of them have got on my email newsletter and 3000 of them have listened to my podcast. And every month, 500 of them, you know, do business with one of my companies and, and, and hand me money in exchange for value. That, that's how the funnel works for me. How does that funnel expand or how have you focused on expanding beyond Twitter? Is that part of your growth strategy, per particularly as, you know, maybe I should issue the correction that we're, we're all calling it by the, the wrong name, the, the app called yeah. X formerly known as Twitter, right? Do you, does that keep you up at night at all of like, where's Twitter going? What's going to happen? Could this all 
go down in a pile of flames? And if so, what does that mean for that funnel for you? I don't think it will. I think I mean, my engagement is higher than it's ever been. The people who complain that the yeah. engagement is not as high, it's because the pictures, the memes, the, you know, the, the poor copywriting, the, the threads, not just sharing well. other people's stories, like all that shit, that's not working anymore. Like it was working a year ago. And there's a lot of people who got hurt by that. There's a lot of people who weren't good writers that were either telling stories about other people. They're not in the trenches themselves. They're not doing anything. They've really struggled to continue growing and continue getting followers. My engagement is higher than it's ever been, but that's because I'm a prolific writer and I write all the time and I can't stop. I can't help myself from just writing. So Twitter suits me really, really well. LinkedIn is incredibly valuable to me. I add 500 plus newsletter subscribers a week on LinkedIn. Threads is tough. I haven't been able to grow on threads. Instagram is brutal. I don't. Were you video. on Instagram before threads rolled out? Yeah, but I only had. 3,000 followers on Instagram. So the people without yeah. followers on Instagram have really struggled to grow on threads. The algorithm's not in our favor yet. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep working it. And, you know, TikTok, I think I'm at 20,000, but they're basically worthless at this point. And we've invested, we've invested close to 50 grand on, you know, uh, TikTok ads and growth. And it's just not great ROI. I'm going to probably keep that up yeah. though, too. I mean, the, the ultimate goal here is a push. It's a push towards my book. I'm, I have my book written. I have my proposal written. My proposal is getting shopped out to, um, we're speaking at the end of July. My proposal is getting shopped out to potential publishers this week. So tomorrow the proposal is getting sent to 25 publishers. I'm going to get a book deal. The book deal that I get is very closely you know, related to how many newsletter subscribers I have and how much engagement I have on these platforms. So we have a big marketing package built around that. And up until book launch, I'm going to be investing heavily in newsletter growth. I want to be at a half a million newsletter subscribers by the time my book comes out because you know, every newsletter subscriber when you release a book is worth 2 or $3 in sales. Yeah. Is that why the launch date is so far out to be able to shop with a publisher and, and then spend the interim year or so trying to beef up that followership or I get, I, and I don't know enough about the publishing business. I would have assumed if you have a manuscript ready, you're ready to go into editing. Like you're trying to power this out ASAP in the That's coming months. That's what I thought. Like I'm why a, the... I, I move quickly. Attorneys move quickly. The book publishing industry does not move quickly. It's it moves very slowly. It takes, it took, I mean, it took us three months to get the publish, to get the proposal where we wanted it. I have an editor. I have a ghostwriter helper. I have two agents. So it's a team. It's a process. And yeah. Then we have the presidential election in the fall of 2024, so we can't go out in the fall, and it's not going to be ready by summer of 2024. One year yeah. is not enough time for the publishers, even though the book's already written. Interesting. So yeah, here we are. <laughs> I'm somewhat surprised to hear the economics of the the publishing that you just mentioned. I think Sahil Bloom's got his book coming out, and he's had you know just shy of a million Twitter. I don't know what his newsletter is. But you said two dollars per newsletter that's subscriber. A, that's a wild guess, Eric. That's a wild guess. We can ignore guess that. Fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, it's just an example. Enough. It's an example. Well, and, and, like, I, I would the revenue, and then what percentage trickles down to the actual author? Oh, I, we're we're out of my depth already, so we can. Okay, I'm, yep, I'm going to pass. All right, cool. <laughs> Got it. No, the uh, book will, the book will be the book will be twenty eight to thirty two dollars. The publisher will get all the proceeds from the book until my advance will be met. In my advance, we're yep. expecting anywhere from 250000 to a million dollar cash advance for me to write my book. So they're going to recoup their entire investment. And then above and beyond that, I get 10% of revenue from the book. I share 15% of it with my, with my publishers. 
So are my agents, the publishers get the rest. So that's kind of the basic economics. I don't know how it'll work out for me. So I'm, I haven't went through so the, it. So the they natural- take 15% of your 10%. Is that what you're saying? Your yeah, agent my publisher, does- my agent gets 15% of everything, 15% of the advance, 15% of lifetime, you know, trickle down. And what happens if they never, if they don't recruit the advance, Nick, you got to pay it back? No, they lose. They lose. Yeah. Okay. That's their game. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the natural question, Nick, is how soon until we see an announcement on Twitter that you've bought a, a literary agent company and a publishing house? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, Move it I don't, I look at me, opportunities are coming at me a mile a minute. My dad works with me now. He's my special projects guy. And he's talking to, he's building our attorney list, as you all know, for our buyers and sellers. He's talking to our buyers and sellers, but he's also talking to people who want to partner with me. I get 20 DMs a, m- a month. This is, hey, Nick, I got a real estate deal in, in Panama where we're buying multifamily unlevered and we're getting 26% yield and, and US dollars basically normal here. I, I want to do business with you. Help me raise some money. Let's do this. Hey, here's a link for my dad. Talk to my dad. Then my dad emails me after the call and says, hey, you know, this is a potential partnership in the future. But in the near term, it's been no, 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 because I don't have, I don't have FU money yet. I don't have the money yet to just start going after every opportunity as my portfolio grows, as my Rolodex grows, as the operators in my ecosystem grow, I'm going to, I'm going to be saying, yes, I'm going to be buying companies. I'm going to be deploying capital and I'm going to be going after more and more opportunities. But right now, I mean, I've done really well, but I don't have the money to just stroke a million dollars here, a million dollars there into, into opportunities. So speaking of what you, so you're, you, you tweeted recently, and I hope it's okay that I say this, your net current net worth or was one and a half million at age 30 or 34, just, just turned 34, 25 million roughly. That's comprised of, of primarily real estate. And then the SMBs that you now own a little mm-hmm. bit of cash. The goal is to get to a billion, seeing what you're seeing on your end of the computer, how quickly do you think you could realistically get your net worth to because it seems like it's exponential growth given the the trajectory from 30 to 34, what you look like you're doing based on social media. Yeah. So my net worth now is 25 million. It was 25 million worth of real estate a year ago. I've marked that down in half basically. So I've just, and look, this is all a complete moving target. People are like, Nick, how do you track this? It's like you ask a wealthy person what their net worth is, is like asking an impossible right. question. Cause I don't know. I don't know my mark to market. I don't know what my self-storage facilities would sell for. A, a very conservative estimate puts my equity in my self-storage facilities between 12 and 15 million. Then I have a, a small stake in Support Shepherd and a larger stake in RE Costeg. Those two together between 12 and 15 million. Okay, so everything else, I, I just, okay, that puts me at about 25. Then I got about $4 million of cash sitting around. I, I just moved, I had three, in, 3 million in big tech, just cut it down to 1 million. And I have 3 million sitting in, either high interest savings accounts and, and another million and a half in treasuries, basically. So that's how I did my very rough Nick Huber net worth calculation. But in all reality, I have no idea. Now, will I get to a billion? How fast will I get to a billion? Likelihood is slim. Like billionaires are very rare. I just am looking at what I'm up to now and thinking, hey, I'm 34. I own a real estate private equity company that can deploy massive amounts of capital. If I can get one of these businesses really going where I'm making a million dollars a month, then it's going to be pretty damn possible for me to deploy cash fast enough, be my own LP, start to buy other businesses. But look, I don't know how to take a company myself. I don't know how to take a company myself from being worth 5 million bucks to being worth 50 million bucks. I've never done it. That's, that's something that I'm, a different I'm challenging myself. I think I can learn it. 
I'm not confident right now enough to take that swing when it comes to buying a business with other people's money or with leverage. I, I'm not going to take any risks that could take all this down. That's for certain as well. Like there's no, there's no reason for me to buy another piece of real estate with more than 60% leverage ever in my life. There's no reason for me to go buy a business with more than 50 or 60% leverage and sign a personal guarantee. I mean, these are things that could ruin me. Why would I do that? So it's another reason why I started all these companies instead of buying them. But yeah, I just think it's yeah. the basic math here is that if I can start making, I'm making 250 grand a month of cash flow. If I can start making a million and I can shield it all from taxes by through my real estate, that's $12 million a Game year. Changer. And I can compound that. I can roll that into real estate deals and compound that at 10 to 15% a year. Um, just basic math gets me there by about 47 years old. It feels insane to me that you're talking publicly about this though, right? Is that why, why talk so, so openly about the net worth? Is it, do you feel like you're compelled based on the algorithm right now to, cause we talked about it a few minutes ago and I, I, when I saw those tweets, I thought you were insane for doing it one, but two, challenge me on it. Let's, have, let's, let's go. I want you to challenge me on it. So well, here's my, here, here's my reasoning. Here's my reasoning. Go ahead. I am yeah. about to move and nobody's going to know where the hell I live. That's an example. That. Okay. B, everybody knows exactly where the head coach at Georgia lives here in Athens. We also know that he makes over $10 million a year. Everybody knows where LeBron James lives. Everybody knows where Steph Curry lives. Everybody knows where Donald Trump is at all times. Everybody knows where all these celebrities who make way more money than Nick, everybody knows where they are all the time. They know where their homes are. All the actors, actresses in Beverly Hills, they know exactly where they are and their public, public data of how much money they're making. Public. It's public. Everybody in the NFL, public. Everybody who works for a university, Nick Saban, public. All of it is public. What the hell's the difference? What is the difference between me sharing how much money I make and it being on, you know, the the public transcripts for these universities of how much they're paying their head football coaches? What's what's the difference there? Is there a difference? Well, the only the only nuance I can think of is the the issues that come along with money, right? And f- friends and family and people in your personal network knowing you have that type of net worth, I think, could create relational issues. But does, I take your point about relational issues for these. How, how is it different from all these all these people? These I'm talking ten thousand people who have public massive net worth. How is it different? Well, for- I think I think they probably do have relational issues, right? And and you know. But they didn't have necessarily have a choice. It's just kind of part and parcel with their. And maybe you feel like you don't have a choice either, given kind of the algorithm. No, I, and, can, I, I think I can control my relations. I can control who I relate with. I can control people. I, I can I can tell real quickly whether people like Nick Huber, they're on Team Nick Huber, or they're not. And if yeah. they're going to be crabs in a bucket, they're blocked. Chris Munn blocked. Like these people, <laughs> the people who are not fans of Nick Huber, they're cut out of my life. I'm, I don't have time for somebody who's going to be worried about it. Also, if it's offensive to people. If it's offensive to people that I'm making money and sharing my journey in public, fuck them. Like, I don't, I don't care. N- none of my friends in real life, a lot of them don't even follow me on Twitter, A. B, I'm, I don't act like an arrogant asshole in person. I don't, talk, I don't talk on the golf course like I tweet. I can relate to anybody. <laughs> I can hang out, I can hang out with, my, with, a, with a neighbor who is a professor at a college and has zero interest in entrepreneurship, I can hang out and drink six beers with him and he'll never know in here one time about how much money I'm making on Twitter, business, nothing. I bet they know. I suspect that they know who you are and they've, they, you know, somebody's been like, hey, that guy's like, you know, 
Like, you know, that that's, okay. that's, you know, anyways, I, I, I don't mean, I mean that they, in a, maybe it's probably I, a good thing, right? I mean, I, I come, I come from a family of, of six, I'm the youngest of six kids. I, I don't, I don't think any in my family have any idea, like really, truly like grasp reach on social media, how we're actually building the firm. They hear like, oh, we're building on Twitter. They're like, oh, that's interesting, you know, but don't, don't really grab. I mean, I, I could actually see just to push back slightly, Eric, where, where Nick's coming from that. I mean, we could get to the point where we've scaled something incredible, build a big hold co of investments and stuff. And even siblings don't really. Nobody cares. Uh, totally. Nobody, no, pays no, that, nobody cares. Like that's people, true. the average per, the average follower of Nick Huber, I have 312 followers. And then I had 96 million impressions last month. 92 million of those 96 million. They thought about me for one second. They thought about yeah. me for one second. Yeah. They don't know who I am, where I am. Of the 312 followers, they think about me on average for five to 10 seconds a month. Okay. They don't give a shit about Nick Huber. They don't care about me. I really believe that. I truly believe it. There's people that I play golf with that I talk to at the country club. They have no idea what I do. They have no idea that I'm on Twitter and they treat me just like an average Joe. I'm telling you guys, it's, it's the truth. So why do I share yeah. it on Twitter? Why do I share it on Twitter? People like, okay, Nick, you took a screenshot of your, of your brokerage account and you're talking about your trades, why share the dollar figures? That's a really good question. I have a really, really good answer. And the really good answer is, what the hell would you be listening to me? And why would you be listening to me if I was trading $1,000 and this was how yeah, I was diversified? Yeah. The credibility piece. And that's what I heard it's you a, saying earlier. You know, the algorithm is changing. I think people are seeking credibility on social media now, which I think is a good thing, right? The I had a great conversation with one of my kids a couple of months back where he went down the YouTube rabbit hole of like, e-commerce and all the money, you know, people are making and stuff. And we had to sit down and break, break down. Like, what does it actually mean? Like I made a million dollars last month versus like I profited a million dollars. Right. And, and this sort of false bravado of like, Hey, buy my e-course. Cause you can make millions when in fact, like maybe they spent millions to make the million, like they're, you know, there, there's a real problem with information on the internet of who you're listening to. Cause you're right. I mean, you go down that rabbit hole of investment advice and then find out they're trading on 500 bucks. I am sharing P and L's. I'm sharing the L's. I'm sharing the, the, the expenses too. Like I tell people a, how much revenue I'm making B how much I'm spending. And that adds massive amounts of legitimacy to what I'm doing. I wish that so 100%. many other, I wish so many of the business influencers in real estate in e-commerce and drop shipping. I wish they would share actual yeah, real figures. And then we would know. We see so many yeah. people on Twitter that were like, is this person legit? I just don't know. My bullshit meter's flipping. I don't know if they're legit. I don't know if I should trust them. I don't know if they're real. And the answer well, is, I'll, I'll until tell you. they share, oh, I, until they share, the answer is no. And I'm going to tell, like, there's so many people who have the ego to think, I want people to judge me on my ideas. I want people to judge me on my ideas. I don't want to share what I'm doing. I don't want to share how much money I've made. And they're doing themselves such a disservice. And it's actually a, a problem with their own ego. They think that they're such good writers and they're such good business minds and they have such good ideas that those ideas can speak for themselves. That's a very egotistical way to think about the internet. Yeah, That's not true. It's just not true. So many more people need to put in their bio, put in your freaking bio, how much real estate you own. Put in your bio how much revenue your, uh, you know, your small business does. Tell us what you're doing. Tell us. Don't just talk like you're managing millions of dollars. There's so many influencers. Oh, I have 
Seven million dollars of revenue. Okay, tell us what businesses. Where's it coming from? Who's doing it? I just think I just think more people need to like have a totally different opinion on when somebody shares money. When somebody shares how much money they're making, like let's demystify it. Let's share it. Let's inspire people who want to know how it really looks. Well, we we ran it. So Kevin, when we launched the firm, right? This was the worry because we we were launching a law firm predicated almost entirely off of a Twitter audience, and we didn't know if they were real or not right? Because we hadn't had the opportunity to service any of those clients before we ripped the bandaid off and launched the firm. So I was laughing to myself going, this is either going to be amazing or it's going to be the stupidest thing anybody's ever done. Unfortunately, it's, I think it's gone very well, but we, get, we have the opportunity because we are the legal advisors for a lot of these accounts to see under the hood. And the good news is I would say the vast majority of them are the real deal. The vast one, and it's hard to say who is them, you know, but there are a lot of accounts, a lot of active SMB Twitter accounts that are really doing deals, really have rollups going, really know what they're doing, have chops, and just happen to have decided to connect with community through social media, which I think is a wonderful thing. Yeah. So it's that's awesome. the good overall, news. Overall, I think it's awesome. Yeah. 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 But Nick, I'll tell you, I love your brand, right? <clears throat> and I mean that sincerely because you do a couple of things I think really smart. You touch on so many threads that people identify with, which is you've got, you know, the little house in Athens, Georgia, you're the sweaty startup guy, you've invested in the house. So I'm not going to move, which a lot of people are like, he's frugal, he's smart, he's, you know, hometown country guys in a college town, he likes football. But then you're also, you know, the country club golfer guy who's posting videos of yourself out of the course and what's my handicap and all that, which is another thread. And so you do a really good job of mixing the family with the the frugal hometown guy thing with the elite country club guy thing. And I think it's a really smart blend. How do you think about your personal brand? You've written about some percentage breakdowns and things you like to talk about, don't like to talk about. Like what's the, what's the, yeah, it's, Huber uh, it, it's all a signal. I mean, you're, you're, you're right. You're right on the money. It's all a signal and there's reverse signals too. Like I, I think the signal of buying a G wagon and posting a G wagon on Twitter is the dumbest signal you could possibly have because a lot of, realistic people who are in the trenches doing business or doing things they're gonna have trouble relating to a guy who uh, who drives around g-wagon i just don't see the point of it that's me an entrepreneur on twitter posts a g-wagon and i instantly think oh god we got one of these guys a lot of people are similar so i drive a ford pickup truck i live in a house that is i bought for less than three hundred thousand dollars that's going to change like i said yes i'm about to order i'm about to order a jet like i'm gonna I'm buy a private personal jet with some partners like you're getting a pj huh i'm it's it's not a twin engine honda jet it's a single engine vision jet that's going to set you know each partner back 200 grand to buy it so it's different it's not grant cardone but yeah i'm going to share those still, things too yeah. i'm i'm going to share those things too so it's but it's, it's all a signal it's all a signal like i i'm building a personal brand on twitter so i want people to know that my kids are important to me they are I want people to know that being frugal is important to me because it's it was a it was a serious benefit for me growing up and building these companies from the from the bottom, and yeah, it's uh, I, I'm just open I'm open about it all. So so we only have a, a couple of minutes left, Nick. So I, I I want maybe this is a good place to wrap up. What what is this all heading towards? Because I know a lot of people have a a, a lot of different philosophies. Like, what's your philosophy on wealth building? Is this a generational play that you hope your your kids grow up and join you in the business and take over is this 
an exit play to leave just kind of cash and investment wealth to family or give away to charity? Like what, where's this all headed in, in the ecosystem that you're building? I, I haven't always had big goals and I think it's pretty silly to have the goal of being a billionaire. It's not something I think about every day. Yeah. I am an opportunist and all of a sudden I stumbled upon an opportunity that I realized is really, really, really big. And that's Twitter. And that's this personal brand. And I know that if I sat around and played golf and put all my money in treasuries and made my 250 grand a year and did nothing for the rest of my life, I would look back on my deathbed pretty with a lot of regrets knowing that I had a chance, that I was here, I was in social media, I had this following, I could have built businesses, I could have built generational wealth, I could have done all these crazy things and I didn't. That's the main reason here. I'm just, I'm jumping on the opportunity. This opportunity came out, the gazelle's in the field, I've been sitting on a rock for a couple of years. The gazelle's in the field. I'm ready to, to jump off my ass and get up and, and, and capitalize on this opportunity. I have no idea where it's going to take me. I have no idea. I put myself in, in you know, 10-year position of what's a realistic possibility. I think a, a pretty big organization influencing a lot of people and giving a lot of other people opportunities to make a lot of money and, and chase their passion of building businesses, that's a pretty awesome side effect. Raising kids one foot from home base is a pretty great side effect. You know, I, I think it's just it's, it's going to change the trajectory of my family if I capitalize on this opportunity. So I'm getting after it. I love it. What do you, what do you see? And you made some really smart pr uh, predictions at the beginning of the year. You posted like the various things that you thought were going to happen. I don't have them in front of me, but I was looking at them two nights ago and I was like, shit, these are pretty, pretty spot on. I think you said like real estate down 30% and some other things with like, Bank mm -hmm. stocks and it was it was pretty it was pretty on point. I mean, we're halfway through the year, but what what do you see? You're seeing real estate. You're seeing you know multiple different types of SMBs. What are you seeing economically right now? Where do you think we're headed? Uh, I'll preface that by saying I'm I'm not a I'm not a RIA. I don't give financial advice, and I'm not. Yep. I have no idea what the hell's going on. I'm just like anybody else, and I think, yeah. but I do have. I do have a gift in that I'm not an over, I don't overanalyze things. I don't need, I don't need every single piece of information to make a valid decision. And honestly, the long tail of information on it very often messes up people's decisions. It messes it up. I saw Fang stocks in October of last year, the best companies in the history of the world, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Amazon, they were down anywhere from 30 to 80% off their all time highs. So I, Two million bucks into them. It went up to three. I sold a half a million bucks. It went up to three and a half, and I sold another. Then I then I sold a lot of them. I, I, I'm sitting in cash right now. That was just kind of like a no brainer. So many people told me I was an idiot for buying those stocks when they were beat up, like because they were overanalyzing it. They were thinking about it too much. But no, I'm sitting I'm sitting here on my hands trying to buy storage deals. I can't afford them right now. The, the prices are not down low enough. I sold a lot of my equities. I have about a million of equities left and I have the rest in cash and, and treasuries. Um, I think FANG stocks probably will still keep running as interest rates get cut, but I don't, I'm not a, I'm not an expert by any means. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sitting on some cash right now, just waiting. I'm going to build these companies. I'm going to wor worry about my personal cash flow, And I think some opportunities will come, but I'm not jumping on anything right this very moment as a great investing opportunity. I want to hear about you tweeted yesterday because there's obviously there was that Wall Street Journal article about self storage and how it's yeah. struggling. And you tweeted you were pretty clear about the fact that you think there's pain ahead. 
But before we get to that, SMBs, what, what's hot? Like, what do you, based on your portfolio, what do you see that's working better, has winded its back versus? I mean, the roll-ups are, the, the roll-ups are just such a good, it's just such a good model. I mean, rolling up businesses, if you know how to delegate at scale, which very, very few people actually do, very few people are good delegators. It's just not natural to people, even high performing people. So if you can, if you can build teams and hire people and let them go, um, buying these businesses and rolling them up, like, you know, Sieva and Xavier are doing and so many other, and Brent's doing and so many people are doing, it's just a, a way to print money. It's a way to print money. I love it. I'm not comfortable enough in my own ability to get into that game yet, but I think it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal business model. But also you can build generational wealth in small business with a, a horrible delegation model and, and every decision flowing through you as a business owner and a team of less than 10 people, you can still get rich. It's a beautiful thing about entrepreneurship. So I guess I'm, so you ran a successful small business, you bootstrapped, you, you know, in a tough service business where you had every conceivable, you know, B2C issue. Then you ran a successful real estate private equity fund. Now you've got a diversified portfolio of small businesses. I guess I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say you don't feel qualified to do a, some sort of SMB private equity play like Enduring Ventures we mentioned or or otherwise. Mm -hmm. I feel like you'd be the perfect person for that. That's what everybody keeps telling me. I mean, I had a talk with Andrew Wilkinson yesterday for about a half an hour and he said, Nick, why are you building these companies when you can buy them and, and change a couple of things and grow them? And he might be right. He told me that it's easier to grow a business from 5 million to 20 million than it is to start a company to 5 million. And I just haven't done it yet. And I'm not willing to put all my chips on the table and go out and buy that business and raise capital and personal guarantee alone. I'm not willing to do it yet, but I need to... Yeah. It's, it's on my roadmap. I mean, it, it is. It's, and in the next five years, I will do it. But yeah, storage, storage is getting crushed. I mean, self-storage is... And look, Corey Sylvester, who runs Radius, he, he's building $450 million worth of self-storage right now, including one, on, one in Honolulu and one in Miami. Like, he's a, he's a badass. He's doing huge things. His markets are totally different than mine. And he said his are doing phenomenally well. Like, his buildings are all leasing. They're, they're going great. He picked, he picked amazing markets. We went around and bought storage everywhere if the deal made sense. And so we have some markets that are doing really well. We leased 30 units this month that are at one of our deals in, in Georgia. And we're sitting at 50% occupancy at some of our deals that we bought over a year ago. They're not leasing up. They're missing projections horribly. And like the self-storage market just generally, move-ins are down 10%. Um, delinquencies up 10%. Occupancies down 7 to 10% across our portfolio. So how does that not cause pain? for a lot of people who went around and bought a lot of uh, shitty storage facilities, but I, I used 50% leverage and other people used 80. Like they're yeah. going to be in, they're going to be in the hurt box. Brutal. How did you, and obviously now you have the benefit of hindsight, right? You've been on Twitter since 2020. I think at the beginning you talked about how your partner was like, why are you tweeting about this? Don't tell anybody about this. And you were like, no, 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 listen, it's going to be good for us. And I think for a long time that certainly no, uh, you know, undeniably has been really accretive for you. Do you look at it now three years um, with three years of hindsight and say, how much of the run up in self-storage did, did I actually contribute to? Because, I mean, macroeconomics, and it's a massive marketplace, but certainly to some extent, you spread the word. I mean, I learned about self-storage investing through you in 2020 before, you know, three years before I, I met you. So I'm curious. I'm, to know I'm worried. I'm worried that I influenced. I'm worried that I influenced a lot of people to buy storage and they're going to go broke. That's what I'm worried about. The groups. The groups that bought storage at scale, the groups that were competing with us on the deal, the portfolios from 10 to 20 million, they were buying storage five or 10 years ago. I was not competing. I was not competing against a new wave of 
all of a sudden phenomenally well-capitalized storage investors that spawned from Nick's Twitter. I would not have been able to raise the capital. I'd be sitting on 10 storage properties instead of 65. And I would be, you know, I'd be no, nowhere near as successful as I am now if I didn't tweet and open up about storage. Is it possible that I lost a deal this year to somebody who was on Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's possible. But there's 50,000 self-storage facilities in America and there's always another deal to get. I don't, I don't have any qualms about that at all. So yeah, some people listen to my advice and some people are going to get wealthy from it. Some people are going to go broke from it because they use too much leverage. It's a scary thing. Like giving advice on people, giving advice for people on how to make money is really, really scary because most yeah. people make poor decisions. It is. Yeah, most we, people I, make we poor get that decisions. From time to I'll get the occasional person that'll be like, "Hey, I learned about buying a business from your Twitter," and I'm like, "Ah," and I feel special, you know, like I've got to really, you know, help that person or be like, "Hey, don't do it," you know. <laughs> <laughs> More, more yeah. pizza and chat GPT posts. There. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Okay. Well, Nick, I could talk to you forever, man. This has been one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. I think you are fantastically insightful. I love the brand. I think you're hilarious. Also, I don't know that I said that in this pod. And so really appreciate you coming on. Before we wrap up, assuming we want to wrap up, I mean, feel free to keep going if you'd like to. But if there's anything you want to plug you know, now's the time. Feel free to talk about your companies, Twitter, your newsletter, whatever you want to mention. Yeah, I think uh, we'll let the, I don't need to sit here and plug all the companies. You guys have already been generous enough to let me talk about them in general. But um, I spend a, I spend a lot of time each week on a, on a newsletter that I write. It's a 1500 words plus, and it's on management. It's on delegation. It's on real estate. It's on building businesses, marketing, sales, just how to make more money. Um, and how to be a more effective person. And if you want to sign up for that and get my thoughts, like that's how you get to know the real me. Cause I spend three hours every Monday writing that. And so you go to sweatystartup.com, you can sign up for my newsletter. But yeah, I mean, I just appreciate you guys having me on. And it's it's been great to get to know you, Kevin. I, it's the first time we met. And Eric, yes. I, I appreciate the support. And I know that you guys can, you know, whatever happens on Twitter, you all can know that I'm on your team for sure. And I get the same feeling in return. And I appreciate that. 100%. Yeah, hundred percent. I was I was reflecting this where I'm like, you know, because I like the snarky comment. I love the snarky comment. There's some of my that's one of my favorite things on Twitter is when somebody will ratio me or whatever. I'm like, man, I'm gonna do less snarky comments with Nick, man, just to be careful and make sure you don't block me. But I'm only kidding. Those I don't. I don't block. I mean, I I take a lot of heat that I don't block people for. I block people who I can tell I that they they genuinely they genuinely want to see me lose, and I can tell, and it's shining through. Those are the ones that I'll block. You've yeah. blocked less people recently. I think you unblocked people at some point too, right? Like that. Yeah, is, I gave them right? a little. They they love drama. I gave them a little bit of drama in their life. <laughs> I get anytime I mention you or real estate Trent, there'll be like a whole chorus of people that are like, "He's thin skinned and he blocked me." And those real are the estate jerks. Trent I mean, and, those are the jerks. Yeah. There's a real. There's one way to get like. There's one way to get like beat up by somebody, and that's to pick pick on them and there's one way to get blocked you just act like a jerk like if you don't act like a jerk nobody's gonna block you well and it's subjective too right because there's some things that like i definitely should block people for that like i just don't or it's mm -hmm. like they catch me at the right time where i'm just whatever you know it's not a big deal and then there's some stuff that like i objectively probably shouldn't block the person for that like is a little ticky tack where i'm like mm, fuck this motherfucker I'm <laughs> i like it i block liberally man it makes it better all right. Well, thanks, Nick. Uh, 
really appreciate it. We'll, we'll wrap up there. I appreciate everyone for tuning in. I think there is a lot of great, great insight here. And I'm excited for people to hear this episode and excited for us to talk again in the not too distant future, Nick. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mundane Millionaires. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, make sure to follow Mundane Millionaires wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. See you next time.